Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 139 being recorded on Wednesday, August 1st, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, I don't know about you, but I've been on pins and needles this week knowing we have a special guest tonight. Uh, You and I are both probably the biggest gadget geek uh ever and we have a new favorite store and it's pretty exciting to have someone from that store on the podcast um this is a company that we have talked a lot about on the podcast so i'm hoping longtime listeners can kind of guess what we're talking about here the company is beta and that's b the number eight ta um beta is such a unique company. I don't want to get in the middle of describing it to everybody. I want to kind of leave that for our guest, who is the CEO and founder, uh, Vibu Norby. Welcome to the show, Vibu. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I've been listening since the first episode. Uh, we we awesome. are we're thrilled to have you. Um, and I, I do think Scott and I are the target market for your your concept. So we'll we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but before we do. Uh, the normal way we like to start interviews is get a little rundown from our guests on uh, uh, their career progression and ha- uh, uh, what led them to their current role. Um, and in uh, your case, uh, uh, Beta is not your first cool gig. So uh, definitely uh, want to share that with the audience. Yeah, so I um, I grew up programming uh, uh, and fell in love with computers and software when I was an early teenager and uh, sort of joined a series of startups and then ended up leaving to do one of my own. And um, we got funded by Y Combinator and then raised a couple million dollars from uh, some investors and uh, that we were making a social network for the phone back in 2011 when uh, Snapchat and a bunch of these guys got started and uh, we we didn't make Snapchat. So uh, the company didn't, uh, totally work, and we we found a home at Nest a few years ago. At a time when uh, they had one product, and uh, we're just starting to think about launching multiple products, and uh, and so there I joined as an engineer and brought my whole team and company over. Um, it was sort of an acquisition, and uh, that was where I got introduced to retail for the first time, really from the brand side. Uh, Nest was a really pioneering company in a lot of ways. We uh, were were really introducing the idea of smart home to the consumer, not just the Nest Learning Thermostat. And uh, and doing that was complicated. It was a complicated product. Uh, we also really loved retail because uh, a lot of the team had come from Apple and understood the value of retail beyond sort of sales. And and so we we used uh, we used retail as a as a place to sort of make people aware of the product and get them hands on. And uh, that was for the genesis. But actually, I want to talk about the first time I talked to you, Jason, because uh, it's kind of, you know, four years ago, I, I, I actually didn't know very much about retail. And so when I was trying to learn about it, the first thing I did was like, you know, basically type in like who, who to follow about, you know, on retail and your name came up 
and I ended up following you on Twitter for a bit. And at a point when I uh, wasn't sure if I should, uh, if we should actually do beta, uh, I cold emailed you and I was like, hey, can we get on a call? I want to tell you about an idea that we're working on and just get your feedback. And so we got on the phone. Do you remember this? I totally remember this. I, I wasn't uh, <laughs> sure you wanted to, to disclose it. Yeah, so we we uh, we got on a call and I was like, hey, you know, we're, this is what we're thinking about doing. We don't know much about retail, but we understand the problem. And I, I think you said, you know, it, this has like been done a lot before. Uh, it might work, but uh, you would be much better off if you could solve this other problem that I have, which is that uh, people are not buying chewing gum anymore because they're looking at their phone when they're checking out at the supermarket. And I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. Like, let me think about that. I actually spent <laughs> way too much time thinking about how to get people to buy chewing gum after that conversation. Um, but I'm very thankful that uh, uh, we decided to move forward with this. Yeah, <laughs> do you remember I, that? I totally do. Uh, I, I might slightly I, – I I'm not sure I necessarily tried to completely pivot you, but um, uh, I, I'm also glad you, you stuck to your guns. Um did you ever solve the chewing gum problem? I, I'm not. No, I'm not sure what happened there. No, I th- I feel like there still is an opportunity as the world moves to auto replenishment um, for for you know all, all of those consumable items like uh, you know impulse purchases are likely to go away. So I, uh, if there's any entrepreneurs out there uh, with a clever idea, um, you know we got we got to figure out how how we're gonna uh, do impulse purchases in the all all digital purchase path. Um, it's a s- spoiler alert, but I think we should put a gum station in every beta. Boom. Problem solved. Yeah, uh, that that's one way to go. Um, the part of the conversation I remember us talking about, though, which I think we should come back to later, is uh, the role of other retailers in your concept. Um, yeah, I mean, we you ha- I think if I remember, you had suggested that. Um, we should talk to some other retailers. So we're pretty focused on building something for ourselves on the software side. But that opinion obviously changed uh, in the last two and a half years. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, you probably got the sequence right, but I think I I, I feel like I uh, mentioned that uh, that there would be like potential interest in some established retailers in partnering with you or potentially funding uh, the idea you had. And at the time, um, as any good entrepreneur, you were you were laser focused on crushing all of the traditional retailers and doing it all yourself. Um, and so I think that's that's how you started. But uh, uh, you you may have uh, progressed since then. Um, so one other thing before we we jump into beta hardcore, though, is uh, you were at Nest pre Google, right? So you were actually acquired by Google. Is that do I have the timing right? That's right. Yeah. yeah very shortly after I joined um and it was yeah the acquisition was i think we learned about it like january 11 2014 and then it closed in february um and i had joined just four months or five months prior to that um but it was uh the company was at an inflection point when i had joined yeah for sure it made a lot of sense I, i feel like a super familiar product to everyone now but uh um, if you go back to that Genesis, like I, the original concept uh, was sort of uh, what would a, a, a smart thermostat look like if Apple were to design one. And when you guys launched that first product, you, it was one of the original digitally uh, native vertical brands, right? Like you, 
you made this product that you were predominant, you were selling direct and partnering with retailers on. It required a bunch of education because no consumer knew they needed it. And, um, and so I feel like there was a, a big retail education play in it, um, which, which is, uh, of course, interesting. Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, we didn't see it that way at the time. And even it took even after we started the company, I didn't realize that. But every single early stage hardware company was a a, a DNVB, as you noticed, uh, because they were selling the product direct. And um, and, the, and the advantage that a lot of hardware companies have relative to other types of um, DNVBs is that they always have the user's contact information because um, most of them have an account sign up as part of the the onboarding process, and so um, it sort of they're sort of natively uh, uh, by default um, DNVBs. Very cool, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so let's um, let's jump into beta. So so let's start at kind of the the origin story. Um, anything, kind of tell us how you you got the idea and and uh, maybe kind of tell folks what, how you describe it today. Sure. Um, so I, I don't think any, you know, good idea is sort of, um, a singular Eureka moment. Maybe it is, but for us, it was, uh, a lot of different, um, kind of influences came together to, to create this. Um, the, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing for me was, Working at Nest and under and sort of seeing this disconnect between how we as a brand and as a supplier to stores uh, thought about our the value of our presence in their stores versus um, the value that a retailer saw uh, in the presence in in their stores and um, that disconnect is is uh, incredibly um, fundamental and incredibly hard to uh, to fix um, and so you know. As a brand, we wanted stores to be an education point for customers. We needed a scalable way to get, you know, our product Nest thermostat in the hands of customers, and um, and we we felt that, you know, when we came into a store, we wanted to present the product in a beautiful manner, kind of let it let it live like a hero product. There, we never came into a store without an end cap or a display or, um, you know, something that was sort of taking the product out of the box. Um, and, and in order to do that, you know, we ended up spending a lot of capital, a lot of time, um, you know, deploying a lot of people into the field to sort of ensure that like every time we had our product out there that a customer, and when a customer saw it, that it was presented beautifully. And, um, and frankly, retailers back then, and it wasn't that long ago, but you know how fast things have changed in this industry. Um, they, uh, this was, not a totally common idea for them. I think they had an Apple shop and shop and maybe a few of their large brand partners, but to allow sort of any new company to come in and um, build a cool experience wasn't native to their business. And, um, you know, they, their business model of retail is really set up to, uh, to be the end of the supply chain, the store, right? Uh, they've, they got a buyer, they figured out that this is a product they want to bring in. This is how many units they want to get. Um, they think they can sell. And um, the store is sort of like just the warehouse with a pretty face, um, as as a retailer once described to me. And you know, for us, it was the start of the consumer journey. And so, um, it, this basically what happened is I 
Um, I learned about this because I had asked our head of retail, who's now my co-founder, Philip Robb. Um, he was the head of retail at Nest. I asked him uh, why we weren't in more stores. You know, we were in Target, Apple, Best Buy, Home Depot, Lowe's. Uh, and I was looking at our Salesforce, um, uh, one of the buckets in Salesforce, and I just noticed like hundreds of retailers from, you know, globally who are asking to get Nest products in their stores. And I was like, this is a, you know, an amazing opportunity. And he said, uh, well, because we don't see retail as a supply chain activity, we want to make sure the products are presented well. And so we just can't give away it to anyone who asks. And that was like, you know, that, that gave me this sort of aha moment that maybe there was um, a way to fix that at the fundamental level for a retailer. Um, but, but uh, you know, we, uh, you know, I sort of sat on that kind of learning for a while. And then I uh, got more involved with the retail team at Nest uh, when they asked me to build a training system for associates uh, inside of other people's stores. Uh, and, you know, when I started working with the customer support team on uh, trying to figure out how to um, address, you know, sort of this, um, you know, when a customer buys a product at a store, but then they call our, our support center and then, you know, where do we send that customer? Should they return the product? And I realized that like a, a retailer, like a, a brand like Nest never wants the customer to go back to the store. Uh, there's just all these kind of weird things that I, I was finding out. And I, I, I wondered if, you know, if we were having these issues, that probably means that every other supplier in Best Buy that is like us, like GoPro, for example, or Fitbit at that similar stage was probably having a similar, um, similar fundamental issues. And, um, and, you know, if we were building sort of code bases and processes to solve this, and they were as well, that, that's a very inefficient use of all of our resources. So beta was this idea to create a uh, retail platform from the ground up that supported a customer experience as the primary use case for the store um, and supply chain as a secondary or tertiary use case. And, um, and, and then we, uh, that, I mean, it was really that simple, honestly. We just wanted, we, we didn't, you know, the business model kind of came around later. You know, if you're, if you're going to separate yourself from the supply chain use case of a store, then uh, you can't buy the product. And so it kind of made sense to rent space to companies. But uh, um, yeah, I think the disconnect was the genesis. Uh, and, and as it turns out, like, you know, now nowadays, anytime we find a disconnect between um, two parties that are doing business, you know, a customer and a brand or a brand and a retailer, you know, a retailer and a customer, um, we think there's an opportunity to uh, to deploy um, business, new business models or software to fix it. Um, there, there's, but anyway, that, that's, that's a bit about the company, but we can, you know, we can talk more. Yeah. So, so um, uh, maybe this is a good place to start. How, how big is beta just kind of from a store footprint uh, perspective? So we have uh, 82 stores that we manage today and own and operate. Uh, 70 of those stores are inside of Lowe's. So we have a quite a large partnership with them around smart home. Um, we've got a store with Macy's inside of their flagship store, and we've got um, 13, uh, actually, I think 12 owned, like kind of flagship inline stores or like kiosks inside of malls. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, in terms of the scale of people, we have about 350 people that work inside of these stores and, and work at our corporate office. Cool. So I've been in Palo Alto. Is that kind of what you would think of as the flagship store? Uh, flagship for us, we, we have um, we have a number of flagships. So we just we just mean any kind of um, any store that has our flag, our logo on it. Okay. Um, that was our first store. Uh, that's actually a uh, a very unique store. None of our stores look like that today. It was it was built on a budget um, in a woodworking shop. Um, <laughs> beautifully done, but but uh, definitely a one off. So the newer ones are fancier. Is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, that's yeah. We spend yeah. a lot more time in designing them. <laughs> yeah. It's the Series A store and the Series B stores are much nicer. That's <laughs> <laughs> the opposite. The Series A. It's the uh, this the Series A stores are the best, and then you start to realize that uh, you got to build a business, and uh, not every single um, thing that you see in the store has to be you know cut from a tree. Yeah, it's all yeah. the timber turns in, all the hardwood turns into particle board is basically what happens. And all the, the curves become square. That is exactly, exactly right. Cool. The way I've described it is it's kind of a, you know, a, a Apple store-like kind of feel um, with, it seems like about 2,000 square feet there. Uh, and, but, you know, hun- literally hundreds of different kind of products you can interact with, mostly in the kind of gadget electronic category. Um, and it's kind of fun because you can kind of, the folks that work there are super helpful. So if you had an idea of what you wanted, they were readily available. Uh, but I found my experience was just kind of, uh, you know, uh, spending like two or three hours in there, just kind of touching everything and trying it out and learning about it. Um, is that kind of how you think about the the owned experience uh, at this point? Is, is that a decent description? Yeah. So each store is um, about 2,500 square feet, features around 120 different brands, um, you know, maybe 130 different products. Um, every product's out of the box and it's a real live working demo. Like we, when we get a new product in a store, we actually take like the first one out of the shipment um, and just take it out and, and set it up like we were a customer. Um, there's a lot of space between the products. It, it looks like an Apple store, although um, that wasn't the intention. It was really designed around actually our analytics system and how uh, overhead cameras uh, capture information. But uh, you can definitely spend two to three hours in there because everything that you're seeing is um, kind of a one of a kind, interesting thing that you probably haven't seen before. And these are complex, you know, the, the products that we carry, the tech products are are complex and um, and they require time to understand. Um, and and so, you know, having really good good staff is is super important to us. Um, I think you, two to three hours is definitely way above the average visit, which is about 15 minutes. Um, but the average customer will only usually look at about a third of the assortment on a, on a given um, at a given time. So, um, but we, we, we have a, a tremendous amount of customers who kind of see it like a museum. They come in, they look at everything, uh, one by one and want to make sure they don't miss something. That was me. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's funny cause in one way, um, I would argue you're sort of the, the opposite of an Apple store in that, um, there's not a lot of surprise and delight moments in an Apple store anymore. Like they, they actually used to carry more third-party products and there was a little more variety. But my, my sense today is you know exactly every single product you're going to discover in the Apple store before you walk in there, right? Um, and so it's, it's 
most people that walk into an Apple store are walking in with some kind of mission in mind. Like they're either coming for service on an existing product or they're coming to buy a product that they already know about and know that Apple has there, or maybe they want to see it and make a final determination. Um, in in a, a big way, I would I, I sort of feel like your store is the opposite. I'm not likely to know, I know the kind of products you're going to have in your store, but I'm not likely to know exactly what you have. And I'm almost certain to discover some products I didn't know about. And so to me, it feels much more like a, a, a sort of serendipitous discovery moment for the shopper versus uh, a specific mission in mind uh, moment like I might have at Apple. Is that? Yeah. So the data proves that out for sure. So um, 70% of the products that an average customer sees in our store, they're discovering for the very first time. Um, so, and actually, uh, on the other side of that, on an Apple, an Apple store is about 70% Apple products. Um, and so you're probably 70% of the time you're seeing something that you, you definitely saw before. Uh, but we, we have, uh, there's two types of shoppers in our store. There's, there is the shopper who, um, kind of wanders into just, um, be surprised and be delighted by everything that people are making in the world. But we, we definitely serve a, a use case for a lot of our brands of, uh, high quality demonstration. So a lot of the companies, and you can, uh, if you if you like Google some of the companies that we have in our store, you can see when you go to their website, they have a store finder, and those store finder is just pointing customers to us, um, you know, saying, hey, if you want to check this thing out in person, uh, this is the place for you to do that. And uh, we we love those kind of visitors because they come in for for one thing, and and we give them that amazing demonstration experience that you know no one else could give except for beta. Um, but of course, while they're there, they'll find a bunch of other things that maybe, um, they didn't know about. And, uh, that's that in terms of the a percentage of traffic, about 40% of our traffic is driven by the brands for that individual use case. Um, but in a mature store for us, that, that, uh, that tends to go up and up. Uh, so one, one, basically like if you lived in Palo Alto, once you've been to the store once and you've seen everything or a couple times, the next time you come back is because you saw like a product on the internet that you, we're interested in trying out first, and then you'll come in for that specific thing um, and try it out. Yeah, Vibu, that makes perfect sense. It's funny because uh, I, I imagine as people get more familiar with the store that you definitely could have um, sort of mission shoppers. And it, uh, it sounds like one way uh, they might find you is through the product manufacturer's website. Um, but you do now have your own website as well. And that's another uh, discussion you and I had um, when you first launched you didn't have your inventory online. And I mentioned that like in the long run, uh, customers that became familiar with your store would want to be able to see what kind of products you were carrying before they made a visit. So now that uh, you you apparently took that advice, and so now I'm going to ask a terrifying question. Um, has that added any value? Are you finding that that uh, you do have a, a, a perhaps a subset of your shoppers that, that shop your website and then decide, oh, cool, you've got uh, a new a new kind of product in stock that I want to go see? Yeah, so funnily enough, we, I mean, I think we specifically avoided doing an e-commerce site for a while um, because we wanted to stay focused on on stores, which was our kind of unique value prop for brands. Um, and we also didn't want to do e-commerce if so we didn't have something to offer that was was special. And we, act, we launched e-commerce uh, in August officially last year. So it's been one year to date. Um, in that time period, uh, it's gone from obviously 0% of our sales volume of products to, um, almost 20% today. 
Um, so we've had a lot of growth there. I think, uh, you know, what we learned more than anything was that our associates in the store needed a place to, uh, can, you know, point shoppers to who maybe, you know, wanted to do more consideration or, you know, had some kind of edge case, like they were traveling and needed the product shipped somewhere, um, you know, and, um, and so it, it serves an essential function for our sales associates, I would say more so than customers. Um, we, we don't, you know, like buying from beta.com is not better than buying from Amazon uh, if you're a prime member, for example. So we're not trying to compete for, um, for every single sale, but um, it's been an effective tool on, um, on, on the store side of the business. I would say we built the entire platform in-house uh, for a reason, which is that we have uh, a lot of uh, really cool uh, things coming down the pipe that um, you know will give us at least some advantages over maybe shopping on Amazon or from the brand's website that you know we can uniquely do because we have, have a lot of stores. Nice. Uh, and and um, just a clarification, I like that to me is exactly why I was suggesting you have the inventory online was sort of um, as a adjunct to your sales process, not so much that you'd capture a ton of sales via e-commerce, but that people would want to know what you had in stock before they visited the store or, or people would want, you know, to do that final consideration after the store. So um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that's, that's providing some benefit to you. Uh, I, I get that you're, you know, uh, uh, nobody wants to out Amazon, Amazon, so it, it probably doesn't make sense to just uh, try to compete with their exact customer experience. Um, but one of the things that I perceive is also true, and I'd be curious to hear from you, is um, uh, I do think it's possible for you to be selling products before they're likely to show up on Amazon. So I, I do think there's some uh, early stage new new products that, that uh, you know, where a manufacturer has reached out to you as an early experience and they may not be distributing through Amazon yet. Is, is that true or does everyone go to Amazon day one these days? No, that's totally true. And in fact, um, it's not just that they come to us, you know, before Amazon, but um, they also come to us after Amazon because a lot of brands that we work with, uh, they start selling there and uh, they don't necessarily get what they want out of that experience. And they want a little bit more control. They want more data and they'll come back and, and you know, we'll see we'll sort of be one of the only multi-brand experiences that can carry it. We also have um, a lot of like international companies that don't have a um, a local distributor or like a, a website where you can, you can buy from here. And so, um, there are a lot of cases where we are the only place you could buy that wasn't necessarily our strategy initially, but, um, you know, more and more, I think that would be a focus for us. The other interesting thing is I think, you know, w when you sign up with beta as a brand, um, your entire experience of managing, uh, your stores with us and deploying content and training and materials and is all through our, our, our dashboard. And so we found that companies don't want to have to sort of manage all these different silos of, of, you know, product information and marketing information. And so our, our, our system allows a company to sort of make a change once and it, and that content reflects everywhere in store online, um, in our accounting backend, in our checkout, you know, everything, um, all at the same time. And that's, um, for the right type of company at an early stage, that's actually better than even selling it on their own website. 
Yeah, and I think that teases uh, something that's unique about your model that we haven't totally um, covered yet, um, which is uh, you are not a pure traditional wholesaler where you just uh, go discover some product you want to sell to people, uh, you buy a thousand of them at a wholesale price, you mark them up to retail and sell them to someone else. Uh, you, uh, you're actually closer to uh, Scott Wingo's favorite thing, a marketplace, right? Where you're essentially providing a platform um, and you're letting manufacturers uh, leverage your platform, you're, dri- you're generating traffic and then you're letting them sell to to that traffic through your platform. Do I have that right? Yeah, we're actually a two-sided marketplace, and it's it's hard to see from the outside because we look like a um, kind of technology store brand. But um, on the inside, uh, you know, brands are subscribing to space in a store. But we also work really closely with landlords, and on that side, they're competing uh, through lower rents or things like you know funding for store buildouts or um, you know marketing. They're actually competing for these brands' dollars, and our store is sort of the glue that that brings those two together. And so, you know, across our every store of ours is different uh, because companies that sign up with us they can choose where they want to be, and and they don't have to be in every everywhere if they don't want to. Uh, and they can also, and every store is sort of priced differently. And so, um, you'll oftentimes, um, you know, you might see a a a, um, a company that is you know maybe moving from store to store or trying to figure out the right markets for them to be in and what really makes their um, decision is how how good the data is in that in that spot and what and what the economics look like and that's driven by the landlord in our case um that i you know we didn't again a lot of the stuff we didn't uh, really see going into it we were uh, we were just like we wanted to solve this really essential problem that brands had um, but it's evolved to look more like a marketplace on the business model side um, than any other type of uh, retailer today. And I think that, you know, just to, I, I can anticipate your next question, but um, I think that's where we started getting interested in working with other retailers because, um, you know, they're effectively um, some of the largest landlords in the country. And, um, and I think as we explored our model further, we knew that uh, square good square footage was going to be the um, uh, the thing that the supply side that sort of drove a lot of the demand. Yeah, uh, and I, I want to come back to that in a bit. Uh, it's even it's good square footage with high buying intent, which is even more exciting. Um, oh yes, yeah. But the so one of the things that I, I'm always curious about. So uh, a brand has to want to work with you. The economics have to work. They have to see the benefit. You know, they likely they have to have a product that require some storytelling or, or, you know, some demand gen. Um, and so there's a bunch of factors that would make a brand want to work with you. Um, but it probably wouldn't work for you to just accept any brand that wanted to work with you. Right. So, you know, you wouldn't want to end up with a bunch of brands that just were struggling to sell their crap. Um, and so therefore we were, we're willing to, you know, be a tenant in your store and sell their stuff. Uh, you, you, it does feel like you have a curated assortment of, cool gadgets that people like Jason and Scott Wingo would like to buy. Um, so how, like, I guess I'm, I'm curious how you work that curation in a, in a, like, you know, a traditional retail model, the curation is easy. The, the merchant decides what they're going to carry and what they're not going to carry. Uh, it feels like your merchants, if you, if you even have the role of a merchant sort of has a harder job because they have to both 
decide what they want, and then it has to be an appealing model for, for that stuff. So we actually philosophically are anti-curation. Um, we think that a lot of the problems that, that retailers have encountered over time is, is because of their, you know, quote unquote curation process um, on, on the buying side. Um, the way curation works for us, and the reason that, that the products in the store are actually, you know, turn out to be really good is that the business model we chose um, weeds out bad products extremely quickly in the same way that maybe, you know, a, an, an, an auction system like Google AdWords weeds out bad ads as well. Basically, when you have a product that doesn't resonate with customers, um, they don't want to spend money. Uh, and so they leave. And uh, when, a comp when a product is resonating with the customers, um, they, they never want to leave because um, they're making money. And in fact, they start to expand with us and take over more space and more and more stores. And we've seen this effect really dramatically in three years of running this model where, you know, we've built up, you know, for every 10 companies, maybe, um, you know, two or three of those companies turns out to be good. Um, and we've built up a roster of, you know, the best brands in the world who, again, have great economics and would never want to, to go. Um, but it's important for us to continue to bring in new things um, because, uh, you know, and, and we don't want to make the choice up front all the time as to whether that product, you know, would sell because that, you know, frankly, like, you know, maybe uh, buyers have some some algorithmic help and, you know, spreadsheets and all kinds of stuff. But like, you know, it, a lot of decisions are made at the gut level. And I can tell you, you know, from our kind of internal game of trying to guess whether a product going to do well with us, uh, we just get it wrong so often that it's not even worth trying, um, to be honest with you. Um, I think where we have a couple of of sort of post-launch with beta curation moments, for example, if a product gets returned a lot, we have an algorithm for that, um, we we take it out. Um, you know, if they if the product doesn't have a you know a, a return policy that jives with ours, we oftentimes won't accept it. But uh, we're pretty open. I mean, we I, I think to be honest, that's what makes us really unique. Uh, and and the other thing is like I think for customers, um, retail can be a decision making tool. And sometimes that decision is a negative decision. Sometimes that's learning that that you don't want this product. And maybe you saw this thing online, but you know after seeing it in person, um, it's not for you. Uh, to serve that kind of function, you have to take things too that are are kind of on the edge. Um, so I, I don't know if you expected the answer, but we we take this. I mean, we've really thought a lot about this, and it's it's a big part of our business. Yeah, the uh, I'm intrigued on the marketplace side. So so building a two sided marketplace uh, seems easy, but it's hard because I always tell folks that are starting them, it's it's kind of like rowing. If you row on one side of a, a canoe or a kayak or something like that too much, then you just go in circles. You have to there's a there's a balance you have to find there. Has it been? Harder building this on the supply side, which I think you call makers, or on the demand side, or um, tell us a little bit about any interesting stories there. I, I would love to. I, I think other marketplace people would love to hear. Yes, the supply side for us is the real estate side, and then the demand side is the brands. Ah, okay. um, so uh, it has been hard, and one of the reasons it's been hard is that we um, we have grown significantly faster than the category itself. And so, you know, we ended up finding a lot of opportunities on the supply side. Um, 
you know, really early on. And so we've we've had to actually really uh, control how many locations we're launching every year and keep in lockstep with our best companies. Um, but the thing is, like, there's enough uh, there's enough brands out there that um, are are launching every day, every week, uh, that we've been able to uh, we've been able to open you know stores at a, at a and grow at a pretty good rate. Um, you know the I think there I think there will be a point in the future that where um, it's not clear that you know opening another you know nth store is is um, best for all of the brands, but uh, you know so far uh, so far it's it's been working and it hasn't been as much of an issue as um, maybe you would think. Yeah, another interesting challenge is like where do you stop it? We we all kind of like. Uh, and, and as a software guy, you're probably like this. You like, you know, you like to solve customer problems. I'm, I, I have this mm-hmm. problem of where, where do I stop? Um, so I imagine it's kind of interesting. So on the brand side, you guys have done a really cool job of, you know, I can be in five stores in California, and then I can kind of like, you've given me this life cycle that I can use, right, all the way to, you know, I think you call it in-store open concept flagship. Uh, when I looked at your site, you have this kind of like model. Um, then I could even see on the software side, you know, if someone wanted to start selling on on Amazon, you know, there's no reason you couldn't like, you know, launch them there, uh, you know. So so that's interesting. And then you know, maybe you could almost become their PIM. You know, there's there's because, like you said earlier, you've got their product data. They've started with you. Can you be, you know, is that an interesting place to go, or do you stop there? And then on the landlord side, I imagine you guys are, you know, generations ahead of a lot of these landlords on how to think about the ROI of these things, what's resonating with their customer. Um, so I could see you going deep there too. How how do you think about about those aspects? Yeah, we we actually, I mean, we've we've talked about projects like that a lot, um, but we've, I think the opportunity that we have stumbled upon is really in physical retail becoming um, uh, experiential rather than supply chain focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I've often started to, to, to think that, you know, experiential retail is a third channel. Um, it's a new channel, you know, compared to maybe wholesale is the first one and, and online is the second. Because it doesn't cannibalize your um, your other channels. Your your the focus is different. You're um, capturing customers that may be a different part of the um, of their life cycle. Um, and so, for us, uh, we think about growth really on three vectors. I would say one is on the context where one might find products. So today we have. Like you said, uh, we have own stores and and they come in different flavors. We have the flagship inline. Uh, we have the open air format. Um, and then we have this full store as a service product that we launched called Built by Beta. Um, and then, you know, on, in other contexts, there's Lowe's. We just added Macy's as a big partner for us. And maybe you can imagine others as well coming down the pipe. Um, there's environments. So um, these are uh, the different ways that a brand might want to represent themselves in the physical world. So, you know, we started with a two foot display. That was the only option that companies had. Um, and then we, we, you know, started adding more options. You could take four feet, you could take a table, you could take a room, um, you could take half of a store, you could take a TV, um, you know, you could take a full store. And, um, and then on the, on the third vector, you have, 
product categories. And we've been really focused on tech for a long time. But I think if you've uh, watched us closely, especially if you watch our product assortment over time, um, we started to uh, to bring in other things like apparel and cosmetics and and so on. Um, I think those uh, each of those three vectors is 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 growing for us, and we're um, we're exploring them as far as we can take it. Uh, I but we've I, I I mean I think you can I think one day we we've imagined sort of building that that software distribution system that you're talking about, but the offline experiential retail opportunities is such a, a fast growing category that um, we'd be remiss not to, to see how far we can take this there. Very cool. And uh, you, you mentioned something in that, that answer. I want to uh, drill into a little bit more the built by beta program um, uh, real quick. You you guys have like I mentioned that like from my perspective you guys have built a platform you you engineered a lot of the pieces yourself like as opposed to a lot of retailers go out and buy a POS from company A and they buy you know gondolas from company B uh, you guys built a digital signage system for the stores and a content management system that the that the brands have access to to publish content to those digital signs you. You built your POS. You alluded earlier to the fact that you have training system. Yeah, tra- uh, training for the sales staff. Uh, you alluded to that um, uh, uh, detailed ana- uh, in-store analytics package. Um, that's not just purchase analytics, but actual browse analytics. So you're you're watching shoppers flow through the store. Um, so you're using that in your own stores, and obviously in your your shopping shops in in uh, Macy's and Lowe's. Um, but built by beta is you selling that whole platform of tools to another brand that wants to have their own branded store. Is that right? Yeah. So as I mentioned, like experiential retail is a different channel. And what we realize, what we notice, you know, in, in sort of trying to find the right tools to build the business, we noticed that everything has been subtly architected around the store as a sales channel as a place to get a box out the door. And, and you know, as, it, as one example, uh, a lot of the companies that we work with don't see the first purchase from a customer as the, um, as the last time they're going to make money from that customer, right? They are thinking about it as a customer acquisition cost, but they maybe have a subscription package or accessories, other things that they, or, or, cons- or you know, consumables that um, they think are going to drive uh, long-term value from a customer. And the typical, um, in fact, every single point of sale system in the world today um, does not support uh, a customer checking out and adding on a cloud subscription or does not support a customer checking out and adding um, accessories or um, or other sort of um, options like that. And so we, we, you know, in order to serve the brands that we work with the best, like we had to um, we had to think about those challenges, and and we ended up uh, just sort of building a lot of the pieces ourselves. Um, but that that kind of example, I mean, that's just one of like many many things where like the existing tools out there are just not good enough for um, this new channel that's being created. Um, and so when we, uh, you know, I, I think as Scott was mentioning before, like this this continuum of like you know a company is the way we we the ideal path for a brand with us is that they start with something small in a handful of stores that they think are really good, um, maybe a display um, that's two feet, 
And as they find success, they'll maybe take out a room and build something that's a little bit more custom and and um, and a bit more of an experience. And uh, and I think we started to hear from some of our 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 best customers and our especially our large customers that uh, maybe a room inside of our flagship store wasn't enough, and they wanted uh, a much larger kind of representation. And and so we said, well, of course, like why not? Like we can easily take a lot of the stuff that we built and help other companies um, build a store just like we have. And um, I think even the business model that we have was useful in thinking about this because when you are a new brand opening a store and maybe you're a vertical brand and you sell a few products, but you don't have that many, um, it's actually hard to figure out like what your store should look like and what other like, should you bring other third-party products in there? Like, you know, should you have, like, you know, a product duplicated, you know, 20 times in the same space? So our business model actually helps companies um, who deploy stores with us uh, find other brands that uh, that may want to participate in their ecosystem. And, uh, and so uh, they, in effect, um, the, the people who consume our platform on that side also kind of plug into this marketplace as a supply, a supplier. And um, and so it's, it's a unique product. I don't think anyone else has ever sort of built a turnkey um, store product that has staffing and build out and all the things that you need included. Uh, it's early, I mean, we launched in April, it's super early, but um, you know, we've, there's a couple of, uh, uh, but uh, you know, definitely a lot of interest on that side from companies across categories, not just in tech. Nice. And am I remembering right? Like, so I, I feel like I read something about um, there was a TED store that that may have uh, permanently or temporarily opened using Built by Beta. And then I think you guys did a, a, a Netgear company store. Is that right? Yeah. So we um, so we launched it at TED. Um, TED had asked us to come in and build a store with them. Uh, and so that was that was a really cool experience for us. Um, but yeah, the Net, Netgear flagship was the first one that we announced and is live today in San Jose at Santana Row. So basically, it's um, it's a it is a, it's a Netgear store. It has their signage. Um, it's got you know their logo on the receipts. It's got their logo on the bags and on the employees' shirts. But behind the scenes, we've actually we're actually running the store. So it's our people. They're on our payroll. Uh, we designed the experience with them. Um, and then we worked with them to find other third-party products that would be sort of merchandise around theirs. Uh, but it's the first time that they've ever done something like this before. Uh, they've typically, I mean, they're a gigantic company, but they've typically, um, you know, wholesaled to Best Buy and a lot of um, multi-brand retailers like that. And like a lot of enterprise company, a lot of large companies, they had been thinking through this transition that's happening from wholesale to direct to consumer and they don't want to miss out. And, um, and so this, you know, in the, in the, when you become a direct to consumer brand, you start to think about retail differently. And I think we were, um, we really worked with them to define the first version of built by beta, to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, they're just one of uh, many companies that are, are going through this right now, this transition. Very cool. Sure it's kind of like it a, well. Yeah. It's kind of like a experiential retail as a service. So everyone's, you know, you have to have a, as a, as a service on your name these days. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, it's exactly how we talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. That's a good time to pivot. Uh, I'm a fellow entrepreneur, so I love to talk about the nuts and bolts. Uh, I was looking on Crunch 
base, and it said that you guys have raised $38 million, uh, so congrats on that. And you have some really good blue-chip investors like Kozla Ventures, uh, Comcast, and then some strategics like Macy's in there. Uh, I imagine it was kind of fun two or three years ago when you started pitching VCs on a retail concept because, you know, every headline is about the end of stores and Malageddon and whatnot. Um, but you've raised $38 million, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we've we've raised a lot in, in a short time frame. So what I'm going to say, it doesn't sound authentic, but it's true. It wasn't easy to raise the money. I think we, um, you know, in our seed round, uh, we must have approached about 75 investors, um, and a lot of them didn't even want to talk to us. They they uh, didn't believe in brick and mortar. Uh, the kinds of things that we heard about stores were, to be honest with you, were ridiculous. Um, we we you know I think retail is is kind of interesting in the sense that like everyone thinks that they know it because they shop in stores, um, but very few people actually understand the dynamics, um, and we definitely face that a lot. Um, but as, as time has gone on, I would say each year of our company, the environment has gotten easier and easier for brick and mortar, uh, concepts. Um, and you know, I, in, in this year in particular, you, you've seen a lot of, um, direct consumer brands getting funded. And a lot of that, um, a lot of that funding is going into opening stores. And so I think our, our business case has been validated, um, increasingly so, um, but uh, you know, a couple of years ago when we started, it was definitely uh, like you said, like the headlines were just not good, and um, a lot of people based their investment decisions on um, on how the group is thinking, um, and that was probably a mistake. And we're coming up on time, but I want to ask this question because uh, you guys, you know, you guys have developed some interesting category leading experiences up to now do you have a vision for where re- experiential retail is going like if uh if uh we jump in the time machine and and uh, move forward like five years what's a awesome experiential retail environment going to feel like then is it is it uh, just a slightly more polished version of of what we're doing today or do you see some significant changes so we're not a gimmicky company, so I don't, you know, we don't think a lot about how the store experience itself is going to change. But I would say that um, if you look at a macro level, uh, every, I mean, you know this as well as I do, but every bad retailer is going to go out of business uh, between now and like, you know, 2040. Um, and there, you know, a lot of them are going to be replaced by uh, these new brands who are you know, getting to a point where stores start to make sense, um, who, you know, brands that started online. And, and I think when you walk into a mall in the future, um, really five years from now, uh, it will primarily be uh, a bunch of um, kind of direct uh, to consumer and vertical brands um, taking up the space there. And I think that's great for customers because uh, those Products are better. They resonate with a different audience than maybe the typical uh, traditional retailers that today occupy a lot of square feet. Um, and and frankly, like the business model that these companies are using kind of naturally lends itself to better customer experience in the store because there's uh, sort of no conflict of interest between you know what a customer wants and what the what the brand wants. Like the these brands don't care whether that customer buys the product right there and then. They um, they they think about the store for lots of things for customer service, for learning, for, for events, um, all things that people love. 
Um, but yeah, don't, we don't, I don't have a lot of uh, insight into what the store will look like. Uh, but I, I can tell you that if we have something to do with it, um, a lot of stores will be designed around um, analytics and data and, and data capture. Um, and so they'll probably look a little bit more like our stores than, than not. Yeah, I, I hope you're right on that one. Um, I, I know you listen to the show, so you know at the beginning of every year we do this uh, prediction show. And I feel like I used to do a prediction every year that retailers would get more serious about their in-store analytics. And uh, I keep losing on that prediction. So I would I would love your help in making that one finally uh, be be true. Well, it will be true by by just uh, by companies, these retailers going out of business and being replaced by new ones like us. Yes, yes. Although the the uh, that uh, culling takes a little bit of time, <laughs> but Vibu, it's, it's happened again. Uh, we've used up our allotted time. Uh, so if, if listeners uh, have any questions that they didn't get answered during the show, um, we encourage them to jump on a Facebook and ask questions, and uh, uh, we we certainly will feel free to to reach out uh, to you. Uh, uh, you know, to the extent that any of them are are. Um, focused on your business and of course if this show was valuable to you we sure would appreciate it if you jump on itunes and give us that five-star review thanks for joining us vibu and um, where can folks follow you online if they want to learn more about uh, either what you're up to or beta um so i i look at every email i get so definitely email me uh, vibhu at beta.com uh, or you can follow me on twitter at vibu but to be honest with you i just tweet about beta so if, if you uh if you want that, that's the best place for, for, for beta news. Nice. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.